We're just going to start the party. Welcome, everyone, to an episode, a new episode of Endurance Chat. I'm frozen in the corner, but that's okay. We finally got here. Jeez, okay. I didn't even know where to start with this, but I do have Mr. Graham Goodwin here. How are you, Mr. Graham Goodwin? I'm fabulous, if slightly scruffy, and I apologise for that. This is actually a new haircut. Uh, unfortunately, it's got uh, headphone hair. Um, but uh, no, badly in need of a shave and badly in need of doing some, run, running some errands the next couple of days in what's going to be a ridiculously busy lead into Christmas this year. And I hope everybody is going to get a bit of time and downtime and enjoy themselves and live with uh, some time with their friends and family. That's certainly what I intend to do. Brilliant. Oh, I, and you're moving now. I, I'm, I'm moving. moving. It's all, it's, all, it's all working. We figured out all of our technical problems. I agree. It's going to be a great Christmas season and a very busy start to the next year for a lot of people, not least of all yourself, Graham. Well, yeah, it looks like uh, at the moment, waiting for a final confirmation, golf 12 hours, Dubai 24 hours. I'm working on being at Rolex 24 hours, Daytona for the Raw and the race. Then... A week off for the week where I think it's fair to say unlikely to see the Kiel Army nine hours happening and then uh, the Asia Le Mans series. So, and then after that, Bathurst. That's and the Bathurst. first eight weeks of the year. Wow. Uh, won't be going to Bathurst. Uh, it's it's too far. Uh, it's too complicated. And I'll be way, way too tired. And if, and I think the dog will miss me more than the buses, to be honest <laughs> with you. Yeah, absolutely. That, that sounds. Uh... <laughs> That sounds like a terrifying <laughs> prospect, truth be told. I, I, it's uh, what's your dog's name again? It's all, it's Ollie. It's Oscar. Oscar, I got close. Uh, how is Oscar doing at the moment? It's yeah, it's it's it was a bit down the dumps. We've been away uh, with uh, some very good friends for a weekend at their lovely, lovely house in Wiltshire, and uh, I'm not quite sure whether or not he's had too too many snacks or whether or not he's eaten something that disagreed with him. But he, he, he's been a bit of a sad dog overnight. So uh, Trudy's got him out walking on the park, or rather, as usual, running like a maniac on the park. And uh, my guess is he'll be fine once he's had a bit of air in the husky lungs. Brilliant. He's a, he's a, he is a joyful thing. He's got to be said, <laughs> he is an absolute joyful thing. And it's not nice to see him a bit under the weather. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, there is actually a reason I brought you onto the podcast uh, today, Graham. Which is good. Which is good. And just before we do that, I will have a shout out to our sponsor uh, last time for the year, perhaps, um, the RacingLion.app. Thank you very much for all of your support. Um, not so much use now because we're in the Christmas season, but for next year, get on the Racing Lion, your virtual racing calendar to keep abreast of when all the... Uh, calendars and fixtures get released and all the changes that are inevitably going to happen with next year so they've been very good to us this year so thank you very much to the racing app and uh graham i believe it's time for us to talk about a topic that i've really wanted to talk about for a, a, a fair while and that is the lmp2 class now just for people who may be new or who just might love listening to us talk about the LMP2 class. What is the LMP2 class? What's the, the, the context of it? Who was it for? All those sort of questions. What's it's a good question. and It's it's changed. I mean, I think, think if you're looking now and looking backwards, uh, what you get into is that this is, it's been, it was designed as being a pro-am class. Yeah. Uh, it's nowadays designed as being a pro-am class. That wasn't always the case, you know, as we'll get into when we go through this timeline. But basically... At some point, and it was around the point that WEC became a thing, maybe the two or three years before that, that they realized the opportunity was there to get hold of a relatively recent group, uh, which is the extremely moneyed uh, gentleman driver, 
that would like to pay a professional team, including professional drivers, to help them to win races. And the opportunity was offered through regulation to allow them to do that. LMP2 was the medium by which they've done that. Uh, And what it's done is to provide some real depth in terms of the the team talent. Uh, It's given opportunities for those teams, their employees, for lots of professional drivers that otherwise would not be racing. And for that matter, uh, the wider industry. We can come into that, particularly when we talk about the 2017 and onwards formula. But it wasn't always that. There was this vision back in the day um, where this was effectively an alternative in the days when it was LMP 675. I know that's the first thing you want to talk about. It was an alternative to uh, LMP 900 or LMP 1 um, that gave maybe smaller manufacturers an opportunity to do something a little bit different that might have been a bit more relevant to the technology they had at the time and the budgets. Yeah, so it's kind of gone through a few different phases and a few different eras. You mentioned LMP 675, and that was a really sort of interesting time for the the class because it kind of was on its return uh, because I believe there was an LMP2 or an LMP2 equivalent uh, at the end of the GT1 era in like 1998 and 1997 that then just got dissolved for a year and then came back as LMP 675. Is that right? It, it sort of stuttered through. You had all sorts of things. I mean, you look back at race results, you'll find things referred to as being LMP2 or SRP2 is another yeah. uh, version of that. They tended to be kind of alloy, uh, tubbed, pretty low-tech uh, prototypes that gave access to teams to get in there. I can remember in 2002, uh, my first year at the Rolex 24 Hours, and you know, you've got the little uh, Lola's there, uh, which were running pretty well up the order because the LMP1s, as we'd now know them, mm. or SLP1s, were not that reliable. So what you had at that stage, rather oddly, because the tech was lower, was you had pretty high levels of reliability. 675 looked to take that forward a bit. It accommodated those cars. You could actually enter those uh, in that class um, with the weight minimum, remember. Um, but the the tech that came with 675 to be blunt it really wasn't ready yeah okay i'd say this i mean i think you're going to mention one of my favorite cars of all time um in talking about 675 it's inevitable it was the the only uh launch car at 675 that was a factory effort and that was the the mg lola Mm. Um, and that's a great way of explaining what went wrong with 675 the concept's great the concept the idea is great it's have more pace with less power and less weight yeah um because 675 is the the name of the the class because of its weight that's the the target weight for the color yeah so that to me like even for a prototype that to me seems very light i'm more used to the lmp ones being more 750 uh kilos or 900 kilos which yeah. uh, and, and these were designed to compete for overall wins weren't they 100 percent. i mean you know the idea with mg lola if you go back and look at the contemporary publicity around the mg lola program that was exactly what they intended it to do and it had real speed i mean real speed uh, what it didn't have is any sort of reliability in the first couple of years with that car and i think it was just it was a step too far it was pushing the engine technology to a point where you're looking to get more bang. Well, you actually eventually did get quite a lot of bang yeah. 
out of those engines. But if you think about the contemporary top class prototypes, trying to save 200 kilos as you were, um, that's one hell of a lot. Uh, if you're going to do that nowadays, you do that with advanced materials. You do that with, you know, a whole range of cutting edge stuff, which counts against what you're trying to achieve in the first place, which is saving money. Mm. So what it was was effectively pretty old tech ways of dealing with a new problem. And what that meant was having the same things, but just less of it, therefore lighter, and therefore uh, things would break. Yeah, um, closer to the things, limit. Things, yeah, yeah, I mean things like the the infamous Startonator on the the uh, the MG Lola, which was always its um, its Achilles heel, failed all the time, overheated, blah blah blah, you know, and it, it took years for those that actually ran those cars to find ways of making the improvements in terms of cooling, in terms of what well, you know, actually in the case of what most of the teams did was to actually run a second starter, so you'd have two starter motors on the car, so uh, it would be years before they got around that and the only real way of getting around that was either for technology to move forward which is expensive yeah uh, especially when it's, especially when there's only one manufacturer in that class pushing the technology uh, absolutely so and particularly when you uh, uh, bear in, into uh, take into account the fact that, that manufacturer was mg rover and much as you know i a proud british sports car fan and i'm very proud of my nation at that point in their history, they were crap. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You yeah. know, they, they didn't have drive. They didn't have the energy to see the opportunities that were there. And, and the reality was it, was it was a tragically flawed concept, but brilliantly done by Lola. I mean, that, that little car, even now, I think, looks fresh. And they, um, they had one of them out at the Le Mans supports this year right was that yep. the lmp675 and now let's let's yep. talk about the the those because that car looked really really cool and that was one of the top five cars in that class but yep. at lamar that class was a travesty <laughs> let's be real here i, I looked yep. through the years of uh, the 675 results at lamar and i think one year they had seven entrants i think that was the maximum amount of entrants and there was no year where they got more than three finishes and often finishing behind the GT field. Is that just because of reliability concerns? It was reliability. I mean, you'd, you'd find, and it went on into the later eras, that where still they were there trying to do kind of cutting-edge um, race technology, but on a much smaller budget, uh, is that, you know, they, they, famously, you'd get cars that were winning that race. If you look at the time cars spent... I mean, the, the, the real anoraks like me about Le Mans, it's one of the reasons why when we talk about the Glickenhaus, mm. I'm very fond of turning around and going, look at the time they spent in the pits. That's how you find whether or not balance of performance has worked. If they spent significantly less time in the pits, but are still losing by lap after lap after lap, something is Isn't, wrong. Yeah. And in this instance, it's the flip side of that. These uh, 675s are spending a long time in the pits to fix repeated troubles. And it's, generally, it's things like overheating. It's components shoved into smaller spaces because you're trying to do better with the aero. Yeah. Uh, or it's simple vibration because things are lighter. And whether or not, you know, you can walk the Le Mans um, track, you can drive the Le Mans track for most of it in your own road car uh, outside of race week. You could cycle it. and It doesn't feel bumpy, but trust me, at speed it is. I've been around Le Mans a couple of times at speed, 
And trust me, it's not as smooth as it looks. It's it's a um, public road. And uh, Alec Manish talks about it all the time, having to cross the Mulsanne Highway in a particular spot so that way you're not destroying the bottom of the car as the road bows across the top. There's that plus the fact that I mean, it has been uh, resurfaced a couple of times in recent years, but that road, the Mulsanne Road, is you know, a main sort of, in and out as a bypass it's a link road between major roads mm, okay. lots of trucks anybody that knows anything about roads that have got lots of heavy trucks on them is you've got ruts in the road yeah so that when you've got a car that's very low slung you know you, you'll see the cars kind of hunting yeah yeah and so what you're getting there is the, the things were shaking themselves to pieces and there's there are some hilarious stories about the uh the mg lola the 675 cars uh, back in the day, and you know the, the the drivers that they had put it themselves, throw themselves down that uh, Mulsanne Strait at kind of approaching 200 miles an hour on those things, pretty heroic. I mean, Mike Newton, who, who races one of the X Factory cars to this day and races it very well, I uh, think he's he told me was he he was peaking out at something like 318 kilometers an hour wow. this year wow. on you know historic racing rated tires, you know. That that thing is incredibly quick in a straight line. Yeah, and, dang. You know, and very slippery. That's that's that sounds like a terrifying prospect in a car that that's light. That light, rather. That's like you, you'd almost feel like you're about to come off the circuit at any point in time. I, I, but but you know, the guys who drove the car loved it, and mm. you know, particularly when it had its second wind in Dyson Racing's hands in the American Le Mans series. Yeah. What, what a giant killer! You know, it was taking the fight to Audi. You know, this this juggernaut, that's where you saw the potential for those cars, far more than you did at Le Mans. Is, is, is that because the shorter races meant that they were able to live long enough to be able to be competitive? There's, a, there's certainly a bit of that. I, I think beyond that, they were beginning to get the engineering attention. They were beginning to learn the lessons that had been learned the hard way um, with the Le Mans programs. And it's a shame. It's a, it's a, a blessed part of the of the story of the early part of that decade. Mm. And, you know, when you think back of the very significant cars of that time, you tend to focus on the winners. But actually, if you look at the timeline and the genetics of that that car, there's a lot that was done there that, that survives now into LMP2, and for that matter, DPI to this day. Yeah, and the, there's one car in that uh, that group that I'm going to mention uh, a little bit further on, but I, I, I had a quick look through the ALMS and the uh, Le Mans and the, the birth of the European Le Mans series yeah. as well as a, as a counterpoint to the ALMS, and something that I noticed in those uh, in that little uh, uh, research, a little bit of research, was that I didn't really recognise many of the teams or the drivers or the names in those cars. I mean, that might be just because I've got a more recent watching history than, for example, someone who's like like yourself who's been around it a lot longer. But how was the... Thanks, the, yeah. No problems. <laughs> but how long... How long uh, what, what, what were the, the quality of the teams and the drivers in that era? Uh, were they sort of ex-Formula 1 prospects like we have in LMP2 nowadays? Or is that just a, a sign of the times, though? Well, I mean, the, 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 in the 675 era, the, the car that was most successful at Le Mans was the Rock Reynard with the VW Lehman engine in it. Yep. Uh, to my mind, in the early part of that, I was still a spectator um, okay. in the first year or so of that. I think I'm right in saying, I'll just check, yes, I'm correct, 
the dullest car in the world. Uh, it really <laughs> was not a very inspiring thing to look at. It wasn't a very pretty car. It didn't sound that great. It didn't look that quick. Because that was a... That was a what an inline four cylinder or something along those lines. Inline four cylinder. So, so I think the the answer there though is, but they got it right. Yeah, they got the formula correct. They got the most um, reliable uh, package together with a slightly sturdier chassis and an engine that could actually do the miles that were required, and the thing won and then won again. And it's it was a time where there were kind of quirky answers to the same question you saw what happened with the wrs coming forward and you know wr remember i mean even when we got into the kind of single bodywork era for wr 1995 those cars qualified on pole that that my first year at le mans wow the wrs two single seater cars dominated the front row they were one and two and what everybody remembers of course is the mclarens and the gt1s that's the glamour end of it yeah but they weren't as quick in qualifying as those little wrs yeah so so this is the the walter walter racing machines yes. yeah yeah so you know i became yeah they, they stuck around frankly too long in that in that form or an amended form um and th- th- uh, were not particularly the safest of cars let's okay, put it that yeah. way it was you know, until poor old alan simonson the last time we actually lost a driver um, you know, during a Le Mans racing event was in one of the WRs when the bodywork separated. Ah, oh, yes, but, of course, which is terrifying but, to think about. Yeah. Coming, coming through to the early part with 675, it was a bit of a, it was a support act. There's a little bit of glamour around the, um, uh, the MG Lola side of things. But realistically, they were beyond that, beyond the inevitability when, you know, Bruno van der Stick would lose his shit and uh, you get some somebody screaming on the PA and it stopped on the Mulzan and Anthony Reed is standing up the car and looking puzzled again. You know, and it, it, but beyond that, that was what they brought. When they were involved and particularly in qualifying, it was they were, awesome. They were, yeah. they were getting out there and taking names. That, that was what they were doing. In the same way that Jan Lammers did in his dome for many years, is they were not you know, we were not going quietly into the night. You know, yeah. they were they were going, they were basically out there trying to kick ass, and that's what people loved. They were the plucky little underdog, and I think that was what the point was. They liked being the plucky little underdog. It, it kind of I gave think, them a bit of a story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Q Chamberlain, the guys that looked after those cars at the time, um, would you know? I remember the first conversation with Hugh about that car, and he pointed out a particular design detail to me before I'd ever seen it run and said, this is going to be one of the Achilles heel. Uh, and it was a, I think it might have been the Startonator and the clearance for the Startonator from the floor of the car was something like a quarter of an inch. Oh, yeah. And it said, it's just going to rattle itself to pieces. And it did, yeah. you know, and it's so. <sighs> a very weird and a very interesting era. It was a very weird and interesting era, but uh, it was sort of, it was good to see it go. But then you got into that next era, Michael. I know that's the next one you want to talk about, which is where this is probably the reason why we can't talk about LMP2 being a customer-based formula. The ACO always saw it as a customer-based formula, never saw this as being something that was designed for factory teams. And it was the next era, and in particular what happened away from Europe, that, that, that basically, I think, nailed down the timeline that led us to what happened in 2017. Yeah. This was the start 
of what we've now got. And and you you lead us in very well then because it all kind of happened with uh, Porsche, funnily enough. Of course, they come in and they do things and they win. But there was a, a separation in, I think, 2004 where you got... Uh, you had the names change from LMP 900 and LMP 675 to LMP 1 and LMP 2, kind of, uh, to use a modern word, stratifying those two classes. Uh, And then Porsche saw an opportunity, as they do, and they came back in with Penske and made the RS Spider and did something that I don't think anyone really anticipated, and that was win races overall and not just smaller races they won marquee events and uh, looking back at the looking back at the uh, american le mans series again this is before my time really watching it i'd heard the stories i'd seen the car i did not realize that in 2007 with the with the evo kit they won eight races overall eight i did not realize that if they'd been a combined championship they would have won the american le mans series well, look at look at why. I mean, first and foremost, uh, LMP1 on the national uh, on the continental series was beginning to well, was it? It was struggling. Yeah. Uh, costs were beginning to become ridiculous. Uh, number two is you've then got um, Porsche investing. So Porsche, it was a Porsche North American program. It was yeah. not a German-based program. All the money that funded that uh, that car came from North America, which is then based the, on customer. Which is then the involvement with Penske as well. Bingo. And the Penske thing is pretty critical. And I'll come back to another point for them. But uh, it's, again, that model where you're able to sell customer cars. So the, the customer cars come, come forward. Then you've got Penske's involvement. And the thing that you need to remember about Penske, and it will come forward into the LMDH era, is Penske are enormous. The, the influence they wield is enormous. The resource they've got is enormous. And they won't wield that influence and that 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 um, excellence without being paid to do so. So when you get to the stage where it's Penske and Porsche together, these two powerhouses with the kind of engineering talent that went into designing that car, and it's still a stunning little car right oh my today. Gosh, yes. Um, and then you get the further engineering talent that came into running those cars. And then you look at the quality of the drivers that were driving those cars. It was uh, Timo Bernhardt and JJ Leto, is that right? Uh, oh. Dumas was in those yes. cars. We had Sasha Masson in those cars. And, that, uh, you know, Penske, uh, uh, at particularly on the final, I think it was the final race of the cars with Penske, ran three of them. You know, there you go, there's the Porsche. <laughs> I put it on just for the occasion. But it was, I think there, there were two things to say. I, the ACO were not particularly pleased that this was going on with their LMP2 class, mm. um, and less pleased still when Honda came to play yes. uh, with the Accurate program. Uh, but it was the saviour of the American Le Mans series. And that's where ALMS in the kind of Don Panos, Scott Atherton era, pretty fleet of foot to be smart about the way they managed their classes half a step ahead of crisis because you've seen that all the way through whether or not it's to do with the financial crisis whether or not it's to do with um, factory teams deciding the inevitability is that their time is over yeah. in that particular class they were reasonably good at finding the opportunities that were out there and putting something together which is where we got to that stage where we had the Audi R10s and the 
Acuras and the Porsches effectively running in the same class for overall wins, and that was effectively done on BOP. Yeah, nobody really complained beyond the the uh, the bobble hats like me at the start, which was oh, that's not very pure, blah blah. blah. No one cares if the racing's awesome. Yeah, no exactly, cares. exactly. That's the, the racing's awesome, and why shouldn't you have that? that that's what if effectively spooling back to six, seven, five. That's what they were designed to do: Pro- produce broadly similar performance over a lap time, um, using a slightly different formula, less power, less weight. And it was fantastic to watch those cars. The way those cars change direction, mind-blowing. Yeah, and that's that's something that has been steeped into Porsche's history as well. Smaller horsepower cars, less weight, more nimble. And that's how they've won 19 almost now. That's how they do it. Well, it's also, in fairness, it's also how not necessarily the weight but the way in which they've approached it. Look at GT3. Mm. GT3. Move aside from all the other bits and pieces. How do you balance something with the potential horsepower of, let's say, a Bentley against a Porsche? You know, a, a boxer, you know, a six-cylinder. Six yeah. Four-liter yep. flat-six boxer. Know that very well. Go. Against a twin-turbocharged monster elsewhere. And it's but they've done it on the basis of the way that the car handles quite often, rather than just the the umph. It's not always about horsepower. Yeah. And that's where again this this kind of lighter, nimbler kind of uh, look. And you know, you you go back now and talk to fans that were trackside for the LMS races back then. Those cars are beloved. Why? Because they angry. Awesome. They were angry little. F- yeah. They really were. You know. And you'd see, you know, Roman Dumas out, out coming around. You know, it, it, it's you know they were they were not easy to drive. That you had to hustle them. Yeah. Just by the way, it, out comes the Nurburgring Klaxon for for that one. Well done, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> but it's they were fantastic things to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was you know, lucky enough to get to be trackside for a few of those races. Not many, but a few of those races. We went to the the uh, we went to Sebring, we went to Petit Le Mans, and, and we saw those cars run. And, and it was an awesome, awesome, awesome time. But in terms of the sustainability of that as a supporting class, you've then got these two conflicting um, philosophies. Mm. You've got the American Le Mans series, where it was essential for the survival for those cars to be at that level um, for what emerged as being the two big factory programs, Porsche and And Acura, together with customer cars for both to populate what was a reasonably deep class for a while. You've then got the other side of things with the emergence and the growth at that point of the Le Mans series, where LMP2 was very firmly seen and regulated as a kind of um, pro-am formula. And at that stage, that was slightly less important because if you look then at the depth of what was happening in LMP1, there was a lot of privateer cars. Why haven't we got that anymore? Because the tech was lower. Yeah. The budget's lower. The ambition of what they were doing with Le Mans series, it was a European series for the most part. So the costs were lower. Yeah. So all of those things kind of came together with actually a reasonably – strong vision of what the structure was going to be in the European sense. Um, of course, remember, we didn't ever have those factory P2 cars, never came to Le Mans. That's, that's okay. something I was going to mention as well. Penske yeah. very explicitly did not take those cars to Le Mans. The Porsche wins at Le Mans in LMP2 came at yeah. uh, customer hands. And in fact, 
uh, funnily enough, one of them at the hands of Jos Verstappen, which was a indeed. surprise. Yeah, it did indeed. And um, oddly enough, I was going to put something up a little later um, about Jos Verstappen. Uh, I, I put up a story about Lumi Rank coming to the Twenty Four H series, and Lumi Rank's first race in GTs was the Baku City Challenge um, back in the day. And Jos Verstappen drove one of those Vita for one BMW Z4s. Well, there you go. Um, in that race, there you go. Um, we're, going, but, we're going full circle. Um, something we're going, I, yeah, uh, we're going way off track as yeah. well. But, but you're right, Porsche's wins came in the hands of the Van Merkstein uh, car. Um, that car in historic racing now, and that's uh, owned by Francois Perodeau. That car was uh, pedalled with some verve by Manu Collard at the Silverstone Classic last year. Um, I, want, a, I want Collado's, I, I want, sorry, I want Collard's, um, I want Perodo's car collection, honestly. That's just ridiculous. His car, his car collection is a lot deeper than you know. And I've seen like items. four items of it and I just want all of it. Like who has the well, money I mean, from McLaren the cars P1? Francois uh, has F1. Is the one and only Porsche 917 that was built from you as a road car. Oh my gosh. Um, and really? it is the most astonishing thing. So, Really, really, really annoyingly, um, Francois had, uh, had put aside an evening for us, me, my guys, to go to where his car collection is housed in the south of France. And because we didn't travel to Paul Ricard, that didn't happen. Oh, no. So, so that will happen, I'm sure, in 2022. And I expect uh, or, a great amount of photos and also if, an if entire we're allowed, story. If, yeah. Because you're not always allowed, yeah. uh, but if we're allowed. But he is very gracious in terms of his um, willingness to kind of share his passion. Yeah. You know, okay. He has the uh, the Exlemon short tail art car, um, stop, McLaren. Stop. Uh, among the, the, the cars he's got. Oh, but there's so, so many. Yeah. So, so many cars. And... Um, you know, and I think yeah, I think it is now reasonably widely known that uh, without him, the Alpine uh, hypercar program wouldn't have happened either, because he owns those cars. So, um, so it's he's a, a massive um, ambassador fan. for the sport, yeah. really. And you know, it's it's great to see someone investing in their passion. Why yeah, shouldn't he? Absolutely. Uh- Want to round us back onto topic? Uh, two things about that era in two th- like from two thousand six to the a significant change of regulations in two thousand and eleven. One, we saw the same chassis race in LMP one and LMP two with different engines and different uh, weight classes. I believe. Yeah. Um, yes. So uh, one of them, I believe, was uh, the Pescarolos used to race their Pescarolo. They did. Uh, 01 this, the, in... Pe- the Pescalo 01 uh, we had uh, let me think there was a cruiser Kai Cruiser had a car that mysteriously burned in a transporter after having been found to be terminally unre- unreliable and uncompetitive ah. and a uh, transporter caught fire there's that one there was one other if I remember right now just trying to remember oh that was a dome there was a dome yes. with the Marder uh, the Heine Marder BMW engine in the back of it, which was T2M's car. Um, I did that not was, that one in my travels. That didn't do very much. But, okay. So uh, that thought... was pretty bloody awful as well. And then don't forget either the Zytec, um, and yes. the emergence of what, what had been originally rely, uh, designed as... A Janetta, a... wasn't it? No, it was no. originally uh, designed as a Reynard. So when Reynard collapsed, that, uh, the, that, that uh, went over to... I'm actually hoping... To do something in some depth on that car. Okay. And I saw that car make its very first 
appearance was just petite Le Mans. It's a P2 car. And I remember picking up the phone in Road Atlanta, standing next to the car and calling Malcolm Cracknell, our uh, you know beloved founding editor, and describing this thing to him. And it was just, you know, in terms of the aero, it was a different world from what we're seeing elsewhere. And that was shown by the fact that car was still competitive a decade later. As the with, Gibson 015S, is that the right one? Indeed. Yep. So, I mean, broadly speaking, the same kind of concept. It's got had God knows how many engines, different engines at the back of it. It's running God knows how many different classes. But the concept was absolutely stunning. And what was really interesting about that car, um, you might remember, Michael, at the start of the first lockdown. Yeah. Stephen and I did this kind of paradigm shift from news to features because all the news was bad news. And we did this kind of best car, worst car, dream car. Yes. Uh, and it was amazing how many of the people that we spoke to at that time that chose that Zytec in some form or another as the best car they'd ever driven. Wow. And that there had been the ability to hustle that thing. It's got a, you know, it's got a fantastic kind of front end on the thing. You know, it is a car that anybody that raced it, the likes of Harry Tinkle, of course, Harry won his Le Mans uh, in that car. But they would tell you that that's a, a, just a stunning it's, race car. Yeah. And that that's one of the cars that did survive the move from that era into, I know what you can describe as being the next era. Yeah. And the big change there was they recognized there were two things that were going to make the difference, both in terms of the advancing cost of LMP2, but also to get things back under control from a regulatory um basis to move away from that factory era which mm. was to put production engines to the back of the cars yes there's one more thing i want to touch on before we move on to that era and that's a very important era because that's the era that i started watching and i'm very important clearly um so that's why it lives uh on in, in a special place in my head but uh a certain car popped up in the the late half of the early 2000s and it right. is the uh, the Courage uh, C65, C65, which is a car that uh, people would be familiar with from Prototype Challenge. Is that the right chassis? Uh, it, uh, let me get. Yeah, it's that was for me the first proper modern LMP2. It was built to a budget. It was built against those regulations. And um, and pretty much dominated. They had the first year, and I'm trying to remember which year that was, where a lot of cars entered, and all sorts of things went wrong. There was uh, what was the engine? There was an engine that was supposed to be in the back of two of them that just didn't work. Um, so there's all sorts of things in the first year that that car went to Le Mans. Remember Sam Hancock, I think, won that year um, in in one of those cars. But it was built down to a budget. It was the last proper Courage. Mm, because Courage then got bought Before... out by uh, Morgan. Orica. Oh, Orica. Oh, Orica. Okay. Yep. No, yes, Courage, because Pescarola uh, Courage... was Morgan. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so that was that kind of confused time where those shifting sands, you know, remember when regulations change, what happens when regulations change is it gets expensive. Mm. For the manufacturer, the manufacturer's got to move quickly to look at those regulations, make sure they've got a car that's legal, but also make sure they've got a car that's competitive. So we saw all sorts of changes at that, start, uh, that stage. And that was, you know, sort of the beginning of the end for Henri Pescarolo as well. It's where, yes. you know, with the lack of budgetary f- fleet-footedness that's required there, Henri was very good at a lot of things. 
money wasn't good one of them yeah and um and particularly when you're having to effectively read it it's the difference between having a, a really good basic package that you can then evolve and he was very good at that he had very good guys around him compared to um being then told you can't run that car anymore this is where we had what people get quite confused by when we, it was the hybrid era between and that's not hybrid electric hybrid it's, it's hybrid, hybrid between, between the two regulations yes he was great in that era he had a package that really worked with that um but beyond that when you started to get to the stage where they were saying no you can't do that anymore he made one really good move um which did have that relevance for lmp2 because it was a very low cost tub i seem to remember the cost of that tub the garage c60 this was the no. This was the Pescarello Zero One, which was an evolution of the Karate. At least Bingo. from my research, yes, it's... sort of. Yes, yeah. uh, the basic tub of that was fifty thousand euros. What? That was what it was. That's what it was, and that uh, that was going to be the uh, the tub that was the basis of what should have been the replacement for the Lister Storm LMP. They bought one of those cars. It never built. Um, and, it, and it went on to do all sorts of, um, you know, great stuff. But it was a low-tech with advanced composites, a low-tech, um, low-cost solution that did have relevance with LMP2 as well as LMP1. But beyond that, things then started to kind of spiral mm. away particularly when you get to the diesel era and to try to deal with that equivalence of technology was just beyond it. LMP2, meanwhile, yet yeah, you're right, we then get to, to the um, C65 was one of those, those chassis designs that sort of straddles one or two or even three eras mm. uh, in terms of its relevance and went from being an LMP2 and by the way, with an LMP1 equivalent to it. To it as well, yes. Because um, well, there was a lot yeah. of cars that kind of straddled that gap. You could kind of put a different engine in and be all of a sudden in LMP1. Yeah. Yeah, Courage C65, C75, and the C70 that went with it. Um, so there was a degree of smartness in having a one single basis to it. That uh, Courage bloodline fed into the Acuras. Same kind of bloodline went into that. You're quite yep. right. Finished with the Orica FLM 09, the Formula Le Mans car that did service way too long, really, as the Le Mans prototype challenge cars. Yes. Again, the, even that is, is an example of the um, ALMS being fleet of foot and seeing that they were struggling and needing to push hard to get car counts up. Yep. And whilst uh, in the latter days of the class with those cars it was a bit crap uh what was never crap was the qualifying with those cars that was always awesome the one-shot qualifying stuff was always absolutely ma magnificent with those cars because it was a package because that just worked. Package. it was a package yeah. that just worked you had a reliable <coughs> engine so for those who weren't aware it was the uh the ls3 engine i believe uh and yeah, you had so. a reliable chassis and you had drivers that could throw them around and it was awesome uh, but uh, and I, they I've... were not they they were not easy to drive. I mean, oddly enough, talking to a couple of the guys who actually drove the uh, MG Lola um, and went on later to have time in the uh, the FLM zero nine, and they would say that, that it's it's a bit like an LMP three car. Yeah, you can't necessarily transfer speed in an LMP three car to an LMP two. It's a fundamentally different package, and it's the same with them. They were built to be 
eventually pretty customer friendly. Remember, things like traction control were introduced later, etc. Before that, they were, you know, pretty agricultural, tail heavy beasts. Mm. And, you know, you did need to have kind of quick hands to, to, to keep those things on the straight and narrow. Uh, and they, of course, became the playground of the amateurs for the IMSA series and uh, spawned uh, one of my favourite posts ever in RSSWEC, and that is the the uh, LMPC, I Will Remember You, a montage by our good friend Baxter, Andrew Bax. So uh, they, they, they ma- got a good was life. It mainly cars being a bit on, was it mainly cars being a bit on fire? Uh, a bit on fire, a bit in the wall, a bit in the gravel trap, you know, you know, just, just, just LMPC things, you know. <laughs> It's, it's it's part of the history. It's part of that bloodline. And without LMPC, we might not have got to LMP3, Absolutely which, by the way, right. is subject, I'm sure, for another podcast. Mm. But that, I might, I'm I might sure... I get Cookie onto that one, because he loves, yeah, he loves that, the P3 I'm class. Sure, that, by the way, I'm sure will be seen when we get deeper into the next era. LMP3 will be seen as being an extremely important part of that story. Mm. And still now, I mean, with with what's going to happen moving forward, I'm still hearing regularly people saying it may be that we've got a future for LMP3 and maybe not for new LMP2. I don't buy that, I'll be no. honest with you, but I can understand why people might think that. We'll get the, to that what, at the end, yeah. Yeah, what you get for your, your bang for your buck is ridiculous. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And... Yeah. and- I think that's uh, something that typifies LMP2. We'll talk a bit more about that later because I do want to move on. But that's bang for your buck is a big theme at this point uh, of time. And we're in the production car era now, the the production engine era, 2011 to 2016. So we're moving away from that manufacturer basis, uh, specifically in the States, I think, because the manufacturer basis didn't really take hold in Europe. Um, And you had a sort of transitional period between the, the nearly pro teams of yep. the American Le Mans series and the amateur teams or the amateur-based racing of the European Le Mans series. And then we had LMP1 leave the LMES, the Le Mans series, and to go on to the Intercontinental Le Mans Cup and then yep. what what became the WEC. And it was a, a really, for me, this is the sort of era that I remember the most because the first sort of LMP2 that I watched. And so for me, the question was, what are these cars for? You know, I was seeing classes as a first-time watcher of four to five cars. There were names like Orica and Zytec and Morgan, which are names that I wouldn't have recognized. And it, it was a an interesting era to sort of see how it grew through that five years because it was a, a five-year era between 2011 and 2016. So yep. uh, for someone who came in halfway through, it kind of looked like everything was at a low point, but there was certainly highs in the midst of that as well. Well, there's two, two or three things. So you, you need Sorry, to look at what the, int- the intention firmly was. That this was going to be a privateer slash pro-am formula to encourage the growth of uh, it's something actually the ACO has not been traditionally very good at and something which SRO have been very good at. Traditionally SRO have built their grids up from the bottom and by that I mean that it's been a core of, of wealthy amateurs that have supported the growth of the formula that have gone on to serve their championships well. Whereas in ACO rules racing, it's generally been they look for the best opportunity to gather and keep hold of the manufacturer money. So this was something a little bit unusual, and particularly, as you quite rightly say, when ELMS shifted to that LMP2 lead class. And it had some growing pains, as you Mm. no doubt know. Um, It also was the start of 
the emergence of some of those teams that are still with us today as being the powerhouses of LMP2 racing. So, and the first okay, one I want to point out to that is Jota. Oh, Jota, TDS is another one. United um, as well. United came a little later, but yeah. you had for quite a while Greaves Engineering yeah. and others. And, and beyond that, when you dig a little deeper, when you look at the engineering talent that's there, there are still some very familiar faces around today that are either in senior team management or engineering roles that were around at those at those points. Yeah. And, you know, Greaves may have gone away in terms of a team running cars, but Greaves are still in every single pit lane that you would have seen over the last 10 years. Um, as, as a, for instance, Greaves now, their engineering company, builds almost all the fueling rigs um, in the uh, WC and LMS uh, pit lane, all sorts of other bits of genius kit, tire scrapers and all that. That's what they do. They they invested early on in uh, pretty advanced uh, computer-aided design for componentry and spotted that potential in the marketplace and, and they nailed that. With it. They did indeed. Yeah. It was an era where we had a lot more variety. Um, in terms of the the chassis, some variety uh, initially, at least in terms of the engines, although that pretty rapidly distilled down from several to three to two to sort of one with the odd judd. Yeah, um, and that was the the, the, the Nissan Gibson uh, Nissan engine, and the Gibson engine, right? Or they combined? The, it was the, it was the so you, the um, what you had was eventually coming down from the Gibson engine initially went because it's not a production-based engine. Yeah. So that was one that went. You had the HPD twin turbo. Yep. You had the um, the Judd uh, V8 and a variety of different uh, forms, and you had then the Nissan, the VK, uh, coming through. Which then and became that the, the dominant engine. Became the dominant engine. And the, the way that worked was um, it was – it's all about an LMP2, as we're seeing again this year, and that's something that's uh, that's been commented on with the changes we're seeing for 2022, it's about parity of performance. And the key to P2 is producing an engine where if you've got a customer engine, particularly if it's a lease deal, that one engine being replaced by another engine going in for overhaul is, is effectively as close as it possibly can. Yeah, And that was quite an interesting one because there you had, uh, let me get this absolutely right. If I'm right, it was Orica serviced, the engines for continental Europe and Zytec, as was then later Gibson, serviced the engines for um, UK and the United States. Okay. And the rest of the world. Um, and the irony now is you can still now get a Nissan engine built and serviced, but it's now done by Judd. Uh, <laughs> so in the historic era, it's where Judd are actually making a fair amount of their uh, money is by. Uh, refreshing those engines uh, for the historic marketplace. There you go. So the Nissan engine became the predominant one. Why? Um, it was as good as the Judd. Uh, there, there were those that would say the Judd pro provided a little bit more punch, a little bit more mid-range punch. And a little um, bit more uh, exoticness with its sound. Because Indeed. Yeah. But the other thing was, it, it, you know, the package that was provided financially with a little bit of Nissan help became something of Nissan, you'll recall, but got behind that with branding and the, the days with Signatech and that effectively being a Nissan sort of team, mm. if you like. And, and I do then remember as well, these... supporting things like Andy Blackwater's Spotters Guide as well for Le Mans. All of that, and, and, our, and supporting us, you know, yeah. 20, 2011, 2012 through to about 15, 
um, you know, Nissan were extremely supportive of what we and other media were doing. And, you know, I'd, I'd probably say, here's the thing, you've probably got them to thank for the fact that the, that the sports car media marketplace is as healthy as it is even today. Uh, because at that stage, we were doing all sorts of stuff with them. You know, whether or not it was through the um, uh, the PlayStation, the GT... Uh, GT Academy, yep. Yeah. GT Academy uh, type stuff. Through to um, them allowing us to get to the stage where we're able to travel to some of those races. The fact that Stephen Kilby came to work for me was down to them. Wow. They supported yeah. him to come to his first races uh, at the age of 15, 16, 17. And that led to him getting a permanent job with me straight from university. That's down to Nissan. 100% down to Nissan. And, and, and there's lots kind of there's lots of other things as well. Lots of other things that that you know aren't necessarily seen that were just they were up for ideas. They were up for uh something being a little bit mold breaking at a point where truth be told the kind of marketing side of uh motorsport was still rather too possessed with things that were less relevant to their audience. Still putting double page spreads in Autosport magazine. That's a lovely thing to do, but here's the reality. It's not going to do anything to spread to a new audience. Or someone ripping up the middle and put it on the bedroom wall. That's mm. lovely, but you know. So the answer there was they showed what could be done and uh, they used that as an opportunity to market their brand. That's where it started in the Le Mans world for Nissan. It obviously went on to the GTR, bigger, yeah. And in some cases, better things. In some cases, perhaps not better. Mm. Um, but, you know, I remember that. And they, they guarded that brand very jealously. I can remember one team in particular doing a pretty poor job in, it would have been WC by that point, and their behavior uh, in the paddock and the lack of competitors on the, cack, uh, on, on the track and watching a then very senior person at Nissan watching cars going by from the press room and watching the car go by with very prominent Nissan branding on it to which uh, having seen and heard the way in which the team had behaved conducted themselves instructed one of his marketing people go down and take the branding off that car wow so the reality there was that was something whereas it's not Formula 1 it's not you know it's not these big blaring intercontinental programs but they did use that for an awful lot of business to business activity they were bringing a lot of guests to uh racetracks there was a lot of i'm sure a lot of gtrs sold on the back of um that activity they were mm. using that intelligently in the way that some of the other uh privateer teams i mean a good example and it's it goes back an era or two of the way in which that was being used to market um, LMP2 is being used to market things. RML, a predominant team through those eras. Okay. You know, it, from, from an X Factory MG Lola through several iterations of Lola chassis, and then finally with the Acura. What they did, the reason behind them doing what they did was they would bring pretty high quality um, uh, hospitality to every race, and they would invite people to those races large numbers of people business to business contacts for uh, mike newton's uh, business interest in computing in uh, high definition um, camera technology particularly in aviation field yeah and they'd be kitted out with team shirts quite often 
you have to be really quite wary about whether is that a team member, is that one of their guests? Because <laughs> you know, there's there so many dozens of them. and dozens. But it made it, you know, talk to Mike now, and he'd say, yeah, it worked. You know, we were yeah. getting good business by by doing business in the in the paddocks there. So, spooling back, spooling back quickly yeah. to to the start of that era. That where the, where it stumbled was it was a big step, mm. and I think it was too big a step at a point where maybe the financial world wasn't really quite ready for it. And what we had was a body that was running the European Le Mans series, run by Patrick Peter at the time, that they began to struggle. Uh, they did pretty well in getting LMP2 entries, but pretty badly in getting GT entries. Yeah. At a point where there were other conflicting places where teams that wanted to go GT racing were able to go in bigger numbers with the SRO side of things. The irony there, of course, being... Patrick Peter and Stefan Mattel being the P and the R from BPR. Um, and, you know, pre- previously the, you know, as, as partners and now very much as rivals. And the reality was Patrick didn't do a brilliant job um, in the latter years. And when yeah. push came to shove and it started getting difficult to attract a worthwhile grid, I think commercial self-preservation came ahead of the interests of his customers. So we had a race cancelled at late notice. We had the infamous Donington Park race where, you know, I think we had one GT car. And mm. then the final race of that season for the European Le Mans series was Petit Le Mans uh, yeah. for the other two cars only. So it was, frankly, a bit of a joke and not a very funny one. Um, and at that point, we got into the LMEM era. Gerard uh, Nouveau and his team took over and instantly what we had was i think a rather more uh customer focused at that stage an intelligent hand on the tiller and people began to respond it was beginning to develop towards the point where island c elms Le Mans series all of that kind of mess really focused into here's the ladder yeah and, and, and the it, the ladder has been something that has been a feature now of the aco across all of its markets um yeah but For me, in particular, coming and watching in 2014, it looked like there was a lot going on in that period of time that made LMP2 not that attractive a product. Because uh, to me, the the WEC had four full season entries for LMP2 at that point. And I could only maybe remember two of them as being high quality, G-Drive and SMP at that point. the European Le Mans series, I was, well, as a new fan, I didn't have any idea about the new European Le Mans series, but I did see what was happening in IMSA, and IMSA had yeah. just gone through the merger, and the results, uh, the LMP2 results, in particularly in the first half of that year from the merger, uh, to, to me, a new fan coming in, looked very underwhelming. You had these archaic DPI, oh, sorry, DP machines, the Daytona prototypes, beating LMP2 machines at almost every step of the way. And then you saw these big major teams like Muscle Milk uh, and Oak Racing pull out from the, uh, that series because they couldn't uh, get uh, the, they couldn't find the results they were after or they didn't feel that was balanced properly. It is was that... an era where the, the, there was a lot of politics. And, yeah. and the other thing is, remember, moving from the European Le Mans series to WEC is a massive, it's massive huge. uptick in, yeah. in budget. Budget is significantly more and remains so, less so this last couple of years because we've had smaller calendars. But it's a big, big uptick. So 
I think the the reality of all of this um, is that that needed to be addressed. And I can recall at the time there being a lot of conversations about uh, a shift to sea freighting. You come into a world championship and it sort of seduces you in and it's, you know, we can have two jumbos doing this and that and the other. It's furiously expensive. Yeah. So the reality there was they realized if we're going to have this depth of group behind this, we're going to need to address the, I don't want to say poor planning, but a naivety, yeah. I think, at the time which is where you got the calendar reshuffled to the point where it allowed a lot more sea freight. So you were grouping the races rather than, you know, let's go here, let's go there, let's go there, let's yeah. go there. Weren't skipping around as much. What we were getting to the stage was that you had groups of races where there was a sufficient time, not particularly that comfortable a length of time, but a sufficient time to get cars from the pits into containers onto a ship and onto the next one. Yeah. Um, so well, I'm going I'm to I'm, I'm interrupt you here because if we're going to get you out of here by midday, we need to keep get rolling. That's so, all right. I'll be mean, stretched a little. That's yeah. okay. So the, the next thing I want to talk about is the introduction of the, the, the first floating of the new set of regulations. So that happened in, October. if I recall correctly, October of 2014. We saw that for 2017, so two seasons ahead of time, yep. we were going to see brand new LMP2 cars and there was a bunch of details yep. that came out from that and there was going to be four uh, chosen chassis yep. uh, a single common drivetrain uh, correct the cars were going to be quite a bit faster uh, yep. but hopefully cheaper to run now I, the question I have I've got a few points here that I'd like to discuss the, the overarching question I have is looking at the LMP2 class as it was at that point in time you remember it's the end of the 2014 season we've got yep. only ju we've only just seen and i mean literally has done one race the brand new ligier jsp2 which was uh the iteration the the, the close cockpit version of the morgan lmp2 which was previously pescarolo and we've come all the way from there um we've seen a little bit of interest in new cars for 2015 the 2015 season um what was the justification in your mind at that point to to be looking at a new formula uh, two years down the line? It was control. It's as simple as that. I think the, the concern that was emerging is that they felt that there might be an opportunity for someone to come in with a money-no-object um, project to bring a car in that could dominate within the regulations they've got. And, and the was... two, cars, two cars they had their eye basically on were the S&P car, the BR1. Yep. Uh, BR01, rather, and the and the uh, Stracker Dome. Stracker Dome. Those are the two cars I was about to mention. They were the two. They and were... The, the, yeah. It, it was looking like... Uh, my, my understanding of the time was that they wanted those cars to not be in LMP2, but to be in LMP1L with the Rebellion and with the Bicolors. I think that was generally what they were trying to do, is to push people, pu push people in the direction they would prefer them to go. But the... But the it's a little like we're heading towards another one of those kind of uh, watershed moments with LMDH. At the moment, there is no, certainly no public commitment to anything other than a full pro LMDH class yeah. uh, or hypercar class. And that causes a bit of a problem for some of the funding um, structures that are in place with the professional teams. When I say the professional teams, I mean the professional teams in contrast to the factory teams. Yeah, so teams so, like United, teams like uh, yeah, TDS, teams like absolutely. those sort of guys. Why is there a difference? The difference is this. At the moment, 
with LMP2 as it currently stands, with GTEM as it currently stands, uh, the general model there is either um, the team will own cars, as most of them do, or the driver will own the car um, or invest in the car. It's, it's less usual for an external investor to own that car in LMP2 and GTM. In some cases it happens, not, not in very many. To, to transfer that to LMDH, you've then got to transfer, you've then got to deal with two challenges. One is the car is physically more expensive. Yeah. So in comparison with a GTE car, it's more than twice as expensive for an LMDH wow. car. Uh, in the in con- contrast to uh, something like an LMP2 car, depending on how you measure it, it's four times more expensive. Okay. <sighs> so you've got that to deal with. You've then got the second part of this, which is if you want to win, you've then got to persuade the guy or the girl that owns that car not to drive it. That's the big difference. Yeah. And I guess, I guess thinking back towards the programs that we were talking about. So thinking about, for instance, the dome, the Stracker dome project happened because of the enthusiasm, passion, and the resource being put into it by the Leventis family, Nick Leventis, is the is the guy behind that project. If he can't race, there you go. That's the baby. That's the one. That's fact, the that's the Stracker Dome S one hundred and three. There it is. So there, there it is. It. That is the car. That is the three D modelled car um, given to me by the team. Bless and you. if I recall correctly, that one sprung a leak on the main straight of Le Mans and retired from the race with about five yeah. hours left. It did. Uh, that car, I think, had a huge amount of promise. There was two or three things about it. Dome did not do a great job to start with in terms of the aero and the rear suspension setup. Okay. Um, and then beyond that, because we were then getting into a rather more political era to do with direction, the um, the rulemakers weren't particularly kind in terms of what they allowed them to homologate with the aero on that car. Yeah. But and you're this, right. This, this, by the way, was 2015. So this is after that announcement had already been made that there would be uh, a tender process for the four chassis. Yeah. And so you've got that so, car that only ran that once. That that no, that car ran loads of times. That oh, okay. car did run. Uh, it did run in in uh, in WEC. Okay. Um, but that's the reason I make that point is is this. Uh, yes, they came back and did LMP one L, uh, but. Really, I think they, they they weren't that keen on doing it. Although, uh, if you're familiar with the sports cars that never raced uh, things we do, there was an LMP1 version of that car. The, the, the Dome there, or there the one Prospect for that. But the, but the reality there was that you're then trying to persuade Nick Leventis funding that program to get to out of the car. class yeah. that he's going to be up against factory teams. And that, that evolution into a slightly more friendly uh, rules base came a little later. So yes, it was those two cars that they were then um, trying to, let's use the word attack Yeah. Uh, in terms of that was the problem they were trying to workshop. What about but were- the, uh, the shape of everything over in the States with the merger, the aging DP platform and the, uh, the look towards uh, combining LMP2, which had been, fairly well hamstrung in that top class with a Daytona prototype platform that was going to be interesting to the American market. Was there that much consideration in that at all? Or was that tacked on afterwards? All of that happened very quickly, remember. That happened very quickly. And they they then found themselves with a real problem of two 
frankly, in their base forms, completely incompatible platforms. I mean, the reality in terms of handling before the changes that came to DP is the LMP2s would have been off the distance anywhere other than a circuit where you've got the ability to put the power down in those DPs. Daytona. It was only when we started getting third suspension elements and, uh, you know, uh, uh, better aero, the DPs, that they became easier, particularly third generation cars, the DPs, um, and playing with aero and engine power for the LMP2s that you got to the stage where that was a more equal fight. Mm. Um, but it it really was a kind of sort of holding pattern, I guess. Yeah, it was, so a, what, it was a solution. It was, it was a temporary solution. It, it's what we've seen many times, and we've seen it at the... Oh, I think I've just lost you there. Oh, but we sort, sort of don't. We're not yet at the point where the vision is delivered, and that won't happen until 2023. Mm. Whether or not Peugeot come for a, a part or a full or no season, we'll wait and see. The, the reality is that we're in a bit of a holding pattern, a bit of a waiting room for the real thing to come. Purgatory. And it was a bit like that. Yes. Well, you know, that's... Yes. I mean, it, it, it was a bit like that with... The what remember was then the Judy United Sports Car Championship, and it sort of worked. There was a lot of politics involved in it. Yeah. I can I can remember the first race I saw, the Rolex Twenty Four. And generally speaking, I have a particular habit with the Rolex, which is the first track session. Um, you can go and stand on top of the um, pit stalls block or the okay. pit garages block and see the cars coming off the final turn are coming either into pit lane or blasting back down um, the main straightaway past the main stands. And what you could see there was at that stage, the BOP process in IMSA was pretty crap, to be honest with you. It wasn't great. Yeah. And you're seeing the terminal velocity of those cars. And by that, I mean, not just the uh, prototypes, but also the GTs was pretty similar. It was actually quite difficult for those um prototypes to get past the quicker gts as well yeah when you're on full throttle apart from the ford engined dps yeah which were measurably quicker you could see that they were not struggling through traffic where just about everything else was including the corvette dps so there was either a fault in terms of the process or there was politics in play and you know in in bop that's always a, a risk it got better we saw uh, wins for the DPs. We saw some famous wins for some of the LMP2 cars. Yep. As we, you started to get to the stage where um, the relative qualities of those packages were better understood, that the the politics evened out a little bit because what you don't want to see when you're trying to build a grid is dominance. Mm. Um, so I think there was a lot of growing up done pretty quickly on that front, and it got to the stage where it was pretty fun to watch. I remember at Cota where we had one well, of the double headers with IMSA. the WC, it, yeah. It was. And I remember a very red faced Alex Brundle coming in after having wrung the neck of the, uh, was it Oak Racing? It was the Oak oh, Racing. It was the pink and black Legio. It was indeed. And I remember him coming in and it, he looked like he'd been in a motor race. Mm. I, you know, I've seldom seen a race driver that's looking more physically exerted than he did after that. It was blisteringly hot as well. Yeah. So. You know, and we got to the stage where there were better races in that period of time. 
before we got to 2017. So it's worth saying as well. I mean, look, you know, that the whole basis of that formula, um, I didn't like it. The, um, so. the United Sports Car Championship. Form, okay. The, the 2017 uh, formula. I felt that it was not the place of a regulator to determine what the industry did. Um, I understood then, I understand now what they were trying to do. And it is fair to say the formula has been a success, but I still fundamentally believe that the industry should decide. Mm. I see no reason why you shouldn't apply that same rule set to a wider group of companies. Um, I did think it was incorrect to force more than just the two targets out of that marketplace. Sitek's worth worth a, a conversation, by the way. Yeah, it was we'll, more. We'll, we'll touch on, we'll touch on them because I, I want to. I'll talk about them when we dive into this current era. But I do want to talk about what happened in the two seasons between the announcement yep. for that uh, that rule set and the actual implementation of the rule set rule set. Because what we saw in those two years, 2015, 2016, was an explosive growth in LMP2. We saw the release yep. of the Ligier JSP2, the first closed cockpit LMP2 car for quite a number of years. Then we saw Orica follow that with the Orica 05. The increase of driver quality massively increased. We saw uh, people like Will Stevens and Roberto Meri, ex-Formula 1 drivers, come into this class. Uh, we saw the rise of the Super Silver. People like uh, Gustavo, uh, not sorry, uh, Roman Rusinov start to become uh, a household name, uh, and then the likes uh, of um, Roberto Gonzalez as well. They they started to become to really push the envelope of what a, a silver rated driver could yep. look like. And we got to the point in 2016 where we had 10 full season entries for LMP2 in the WEC, which were G Drive, two cars from Mana, two cars from Alpine, uh, two cars mm-hmm. from Extreme Speed Motorsports, two cars from SMP, um, the Stracker uh, team. And RGR Morand. And uh, for me, that was probably one of the most impressive uh, seasons from a class uh, with not just uh, the, the race that sticks out in my mind is the Fuji 2016 race, which wasn't just the best WEC race for LMP1. It was actually the best LMP, uh, LMP2 race as well. So we, we kind of had this explosive growth in that period. And there was significant uncertainty from going from what we had and what we were holding on to to this brand new implementation of a brand new class uh, at that point in time. What happens in that sort of situation? Like clearly what happened was we just went to LMP217, but as the class gathered steam, it was looking more and more like this move to a new, uh, to a new chassis platform might be a mistake. Yeah, I think most people knew what was coming. I think first things first, WC at that stage was in its pomp without a shadow of a doubt. So it became an aspirational thing for people to do. And if you've got the motivation and resource, why not go and do the best? Why not do that? You had teams and drivers that were aspiring to moving up through LMP2 to LMP1 where that opportunity was uh, was potentially there and on the horizon, which is why you've got you know, people like Will coming out of uh, Formula 1 and looking for what potentially could get him back into 
um, you know, a factory seat, and LMP2 offered that opportunity. And just just You've quickly got- looking at some of the names from the 2016 uh, Le Mans 24 Hours that I've got in front of me, guys like Silver Raider at this point, Gustavo Menezes, who will be driving yeah. in, yeah. I think, uh, well, he's part of the Glickenhaus team now. Um, the likes of... He'll be in the Peugeot as well. Yes, indeed he will. Um, the guys like... Uh, who Who's someone else I can very quickly find? Uh, Jake Dennis uh, mm-hmm. driving in the yeah. G-Drive car. Um, it's it's like Gustavo. I was actually at the first test he ever did in the Alpine. Um, he, really, he was post. He was post. Um, WC before we had the rookie tests, and the day after there was a Dunlop tire test um, at uh, Bahrain, running out of the other pit lane. It was also, by the way, uh, the first. That was the same day as Marco Sorensen had his first re- uh, run with Aston Martin. Well, there you go. Uh, that day. So there's all that that kind of stuff going on in the background, and that was uh, Dunlop working on uh, the oddest thing in the world was they were working in Bahrain on their wet weather tires uh, because they <laughs> they wet the circuit um, there and you, go. It, you know repeatedly. So it's the answer there is there's there's another model that w- it warrants it. You mentioned extreme speed motorsport, and there's two things about ESM. One was that's another team, like I said about RML, that used their presence at the races to do business-to-business business marketing. Yeah, because they, they were marketing present with te- Tequila Patron. That was their, right. their big brand. But also, let's, get, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. And that, that was uh, Indeed, it was, it was basically, that was Ed Brown um, wanting to fulfill his passion whilst he had the available finance to do that. And he did that for several years. And at the end of the day, after the DPI project with Nissan, then walked away from it. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, you then get the other part of it, which is this pro-am thing, which pretty quickly became somewhat farcical in terms of the driver ranking system. And, and you, when you do the job that I do, you have those kind of moments, conversations, bits of wisdom that give you a completely different perspective on a situation you viewed in a particular way. And one of mine came, again, oddly enough, in Bahrain, uh, in the paddock, with a long chat with David Heinmeier Hansen. Yeah, uh, you know, a real gentleman driver, um, but seen as being as quick as most of those super silvers in his pomp. And David, uh, I remember him saying, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not it's a mistake uh, in the long run, because this was the emergence of guys coming in that were going head to head with gentleman drivers that really were pro drivers, mm. like Gustavo Menezes and indeed, uh, Andrea Pizzatola. Yeah, remains to be seen whether or not it's a mistake to tell guys like me, David Heimer Hansen, that I'm allowed to compete to win a race at world championship level and that you regulate through the regulations, the the classification of the drivers that are allowed to drive those cars and for how long, and you regulate the how you make up the classification of those individual drivers and he's he was right you know he was right that basically once you've made that promise and that was really the first time in, in motorsport history we've done that that you know this driver classification thing came in for prime racing once you've made that investment in a, a system that fuels that then of course people are you've then got to it. act as a international policeman to make sure that that's maintained because if you don't what happens is pretty soon the guys providing the resource that that fueled that the money that fuels that pretty quickly get pissed off with it 
and we'll walk away. And David's a great example of someone who did exactly that. Absolutely. I have to tell you, I don't think he's wrong. I remember. I don't think he's wrong. Absolutely. I agree with you. I've had, I've seen him fire up about driver ratings on Twitter a number of times, but I will remember, and I will always remember this, a drive that he did at the 20, 2016 uh, Nürburgring six hours where okay. as a silver driver, as a, as a genuine amateur driver, he held off Bruto Senna for three quarters of a stint. And yep. that was that was one of the, the most impressive drives I've ever seen from a silver driver. Uh, and it is quite honestly a shame to not see him in the... Um, in the championship anymore because he brought that aspect to it. And as we discuss the 2017 regulations, which uh, has fallen rife to this sort of uh, super silver thing, um, we're seeing less and less of it. And now we've got a, a specific class set up for bronze drivers within that LMP2 structure. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a sec, but let's talk about the current era, the P217 era, because when these cars debuted... Boy, howdy, they were something incredible. You had extra extra horsepower, something like what they're producing, 600 horsepower now? 600, yep. In, yep. in, in that initial form, you've got better downforce packets. They're much faster. When they got to Le Mans, they were running at a, 20, a 2011 LMP1 pace, which was yep. just astounding. And the reason that they had that room to move into that sort of pace bracket was because LMP1H was, again, another step quicker. Uh, so... Let's let's just do a, a quick broad thing here. Um, good, bad, or indifferent? The quality of racing in LMP217. Um, I think it's great. Is a straight answer. I love the pro am aspect to it. I, it's it's something I'm a massive fan of, and I've not got a lot of patience for those that don't. Uh, because if you know, if if actually what you're looking for is for Lewis Hamilton to be in every car, then dream on. Mm. The reality here is you wouldn't have it without the people paying for it. Yeah, and so the, you've got to see that as well. Um, we'll get on to the Formula Oric a bit, I'm sure, in a moment. Absolutely, yeah. But but before we get into that, it's worth just a moment or two about the selection process yes. for it. It so was that's what, controversial. That's one of my discussion points. So the, the tender yep. process, if, I, if I'm correct, if I recall correctly, is there was uh, four chassis that were yep. uh, chosen. That was announced very early on. Um, and it was announced that one of them had to be North American-based. Um, Correct, and I, you might know the answer to this. Was that because of the involvement of DPI, uh, or was that just a we want to throw the American market a bone here? No, it was it was definitely because there was an IMSA aspect to yeah. this. I mean, the, the the DPI to Le Mans, yes, no, that that's probably for another day. Yeah, but the original idea with DPI, remember, was that the DPIs would be able to race at Le Mans, but with the standard LMP2 bodywork. Yeah, and the engine as well, if I recall correctly. Uh, would have to chat. I thought. I thought not. I thought okay. it was just the bodywork. Okay. Uh, but either way, the the reality there was that that part of the plan fell to pieces pretty darn quickly. Yeah. Um, and there's all sorts of you promised, no, we didn't. Blah blah mm. blah. But also, the, um, also on that as well, the single mandated mandated drivetrain and electronics package. Gibson won that tender, uh, and yeah. uh, Cosworth, I believe, won the electronics package. Yeah. So what were your thoughts on the tender process for that, the four chosen chassis and the single drivetrain? Because to me, initially, the single drivetrain set off an alarm bell that has gotten much, uh, well, that has turned off over time because the Gibson just has been such a good engine. 
I think the answer is realistically at that point, that was the less controversial part of it because by then the Nissan dominated the marketplace so much yep. um, that it wasn't really a massive change. Big uptick in power without a shadow of a doubt. Mm. Um, the chassis uh, tender, that got pretty fruity. Yes. Um, and there were two, two names in particular worth mentioning that didn't make it. One was Zytec that eventually chose not to. Okay. They chose to to concentrate on what became Gibson and blah blah blah. They presented their proposal um, for that era on the morning of the Le Mans twenty four hours. I remember being handed the press release as I'm ready. To, I remember turning to the, the person who was doing their PR, going, "Are you kidding me?" You and want that me was to write 20, 2015, wasn't it? I think that's probably right. Yes, because yeah. they, they that, announced the t- tender process in May and it was closed by June. So that sounds so, about right. But that pretty quickly went away. At that stage, what uh, what was soon to become Gibson uh, determined was going to be their strategy was, yes, they were going to go for the um, the engine tender, but they switched their focus towards looking for an, a, a factory or semi-factory LMP1 um, program okay. uh, on the chassis front. But remember, one of the things that changed when Zytec became Gibson is that the chassis side of things went. That mm. went with the, the company that was sold on. The other one, inevitably, is Ginetta. Yes. And that was infinitely more controversial. Remember, Ginetta, without uh, Ginetta... LMP3 simply wouldn't have gathered the kind of speed. And I've told the story before, I'll tell it again. As late as Brazil in 2014, uh, Jacques Nicolet was telling me we are not going to produce a Ligier P3 car. The thing that changed his mind was seeing that Lawrence Tomlinson was getting customers and lots of them at that stage. Um, and then uh, the the reaction he was getting from his commercial and industrial advisors was that by building the cars in batches, that would bring down the cost per car sufficiently for them to make uh, a going concern of that with the emerging Ligier Automotive. Mm. And yeah, they eventually ended up with the JSP3, the original car, building well over 100 of those cars. Wow. I think I think 115 JSP3s. I think did they all get sold? Um, uh, yeah, yes. Wow. I mean, a, number, a, a very large number of those are now JSP320s. Yes. Uh, because obviously you can upgrade the cars, but you know there were two-seater cars. I mean, when um, uh, Interlagos uh, was successful in getting a WC round, one of the things that they did was to buy a two-seater Ligier as part of the publicity drive, which meant they could give local media. Some oh, LMP2 yep. lapping experience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So all sorts of things. Remember um, uh, Pierre uh, Fion driving the very first Ligier uh, at the final race of 2015. Which he would have demonstrated been in the car. No, that was no. This was Estoril. I think oh, Estoril. in the in the yep. European Le Mans series. So we did have. I think we had a car in the race, but Pierre. I want to say it was, yeah, it was for 15 uh, in the gap between the sessions yep. actually lapped in that car. It was actually that car, the same car that was the car that Euro International took to the championship uh, <laughs> two years ago. Yeah. Well. Um, that car became effectively the factory demonstrator. Uh, so um, 
going back to it, so Janetta bid, um, bid strongly, without a shadow of a doubt, and I think were surprised, dismayed, annoyed uh, to lose out, and the the reality is lost out to Delara. Yes. Uh, now, Delara was was a bit of a wild wild card for me because you would expect Ligier being an LMP2 car uh, with the JSP2 and French base yeah. that they would get a tender. Orica being a French based LMP existing LMP2 platform that they yeah. would get a tender. Especially considering that the Orica 05 was the only car that could be upgraded to the new regulations because they had the Con- same wheelbase somehow. Somewhat, contra- somewhat controversially, it's who 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 understands how that would have happened? No way. Um, but Delara, I don't. Uh, Delara hadn't built a prototype chassis for a number of years at that stage. Is that oh, right? The SP, the SP one, other than the because um, they were working with SMP. No, not no. The, not that one. No, that came later. So the, Delara were working for a long time with Audi on their LMP one car. Okay, yeah. But in terms of a Delara branded car, it was the SP one that had started out with the Chrysler program, uh, went on with Orica, famously uh, raced on post-Orica days by Roll Center. Okay. Um, uh, took the 2002 Rolex 24 Hours win in the case of the the um, Freddie Dor- uh, uh, the um, Doran Lister car okay. uh, that raced at uh, my very first uh, Rolex 24. That, that was the winning car there. So they'd not produced one of those. I think high thing, things were expected of that that car. I think it's fair to say that it's likely the ACO were tipped in terms of the the potential of the world's biggest specialist race car builder um, coming into their customer uh, marketplace. And I can recall lots of conversation with teams talking about, well, effectively, I, I could probably sit down now and write down six or seven team names where someone reasonably senior would pick up the phone and say, what are you hearing? What do you think? What should we choose oh, wow. of these? And Delara was pretty much right up there in terms of um, the, the the choices that people would actually make. Because Delara, of course, were making, I believe, Formula 3 chassis and IndyCar chassis at that point in time, weren't they? Yeah, and a yeah. lot more besides. Yeah. You know, you know, a lot more besides. So they've got the ability. Here's the thing. Therefore, a prove, proven ability to build a chassis, a spec chassis, with an equalized performance window. So they can, mm. they've got repeatability on their side. Yes. Um, I gather uh, very good customer service. I've got you know, people I talk to quite often at Delara, and I would suggest that they're as good at getting back to their customers as they are about getting back to me with Manushiai. That's a good thing. Uh, but then again, so are Ligier. Ligier, yeah. I think, in the LMP3 marketplace, pretty much unmatched in terms of the level of service they provide. It's a customer-led product. Mm. So we then get down into that. Uh, and, so yes, there was a lot of anger. And that, what about uh, the what about the Riley Multimatic? Because the Riley Multimatic yeah. was the the first to fall off the fall off the wagon, so to speak. I think the I think, the, the Riley race w- was raced by Visit Florida Racing, and they raced that car seven times before moving to the Ligier when they immediately won. Uh, yeah. And then that chassis was then picked up by Ben Keating and run at Lamar once alongside yeah. uh, your own Blake Molin. And I've got it here. Um, I'll just find that quickly. Um, your own Blake Mullen and Ricky Taylor and was unreliable at best and uh, off the pace at worst. 
Yeah, it was. So, so it survives eight races, not as the Mazda DPI. Yeah. Does that... I don't want to say, was their tender justified, but was their tender justified? I think the answer is they may... So, I mean, I can I give you one little story here, which was um, I got a very good relationship with uh, a number of senior people in the industry. One of them, Larry Holt at Multimatic, extraordinary individual, extraordinary yeah. company. And I went to sit down with Larry to talk about one thing, and he didn't want to talk about that one thing. He wanted to talk about LMP2, and this was at Le Mans. And at that point, he told me how unhappy they were with the way that that program, the LMP2 program, was going. Uh, that was having knock-on effects on the master program yep. at the time, which you'll remember had a fundamental redesign. We'll come back to that part in a moment. But he was effectively telling me um, the Riley Multimatic program will effectively become a Multimatic program. Okay. The, the, the Riley aspect of that we're unhappy with. The, the bit of soundbite I can recall, I might be slight paraphrasing here, is we've realized the biggest mistake we made was Here's Multimatic. If Multimatic are known for one thing in the, the automotive world, it is as world experts on suspension. Um, and we've got a LMP2 car with our name on it that we didn't design the suspension for. So they were allowed under that process of jokers, yep. a flawed process, to redesign the car. Um, I think it is fair to say that that had a bigger knock-on positive effect on the DPR than it did on the... Um, on the LMP2. Well, the LMP2 never uh, raced again. Uh, it, the Joker, it did once. It, it did once. At Le Mans? Did, or? Answer, no, BAR ran it at... Um, bar, what's the name of that bloody... Uh, 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 the guy who was ex-Intersports. Brian somebody. Brian Alder Racing. Ran at uh, Daytona 24 Hours. Did they? I don't yeah. remember this. It must have been this so was, anonymous because I don't remember this that was, at all. This was with, this was with the new suspension setup and it, it, to be blunt it just lacked a huge amount of development yep. there was then the the attempt by rick where racing were going to bring the car back again yes that didn't. was right so uh so the, the answer there is that's a kind of sad part of it and mm. it's a flaw in the plan for lmp2 and for that matter lmdh and lmp2 which is do it or don't do it but but don't steal a march in terms of the big program which is your factory based dpi slash lmdh to take advantage against the others that are, are, are very much uh, marketing in lmp2 but what came out of that was um each of the uh the four cars we you know we could go over the raleigh multimatic ad infinitum but it frankly wasn't up to snuff yeah the Ligier strong package won some races uh, but the the Achilles heel there was the gearbox. Yeah, okay. Uh, that was always uh, unreliable, and you know you'll recall because uh, you were with us at the bend for yes. the Asian yes, Monster. Yes, that was there. right. The Eurasian Motorsport car, really quick, but the gearbox was always the big problem there. Yeah, and then you've got the uh, the Lara, and remarkably, the one thing you'd have thought the Lara would not cock up was the aerodynamics. Yeah, and, and they had problems at high speed. They had problems at high speed, but I mean, yes, no. So with the original Le Mans package on it, and the first year that car was at Le Mans, you may or may not remember that the Racing Team Nedland car had Rubens Barrichello in the car. Yes, I do remember and that. And that, I think that car, 
might have been the quickest thing overall in a straight line. Well, wow. couldn't, couldn't get around the corners. It was ridiculously overly slippy. They got it wrong, basically. The balance between um, drag and downforce had got it wrong. And yeah. I remember talking to Rubens after that uh, in conversation with um, – he was chatting to me, and in came Alan McNish for a conversation, their old mates. And that was a very interesting conversation to observe. And Rubens' eyes were very wide. And he, he, he said that was quick. He said, yeah, but I think Mulzan Corner, he was describing in Indianapolis as well as being um, – remarkably tricky. Was, so, was Rubens at the wheel that year at Le Mans? I, I've got the spotter's guide right so. in front of me. I, I feel like I remember him being there, but I don't remember him being in that car. I think he was in the race to Dublin car. Oh, uh, according to this, we've got Fritz van Erd, Guido van der Gaard, and Jan Lammers in that car. Um, was, was that the second year? Is it possible that Rubens was in another Delara? That might year? be, but I seem to remember it being Rubens. Ah, oh, very peculiar. I'll, I'll have a quick flip through. You chat, chat away to me and I'll have a look. You, you, you chat away and I'll, well, I'll do the... Uh... There, there was, uh, the Delara was uh, a car that had proven pace as well because I remember the first two European Le Mans races of that season at the hands of yep. uh, high-class racing, which was just Anders Fjordback and Dennis Anderson at that point, so not even, uh, not even a, a pro driver. They managed to take two second places, one at Silverstone and one at Monza, which was just an incredible... Um, an incredible result for them uh, early on, uh, but it just yep. didn't seem that they they managed to um, find further pace. Okay, well this is very peculiar. I've seemed to have lost my 2017 spotters guide. Well, there okay. it is. There okay. is Rubens Barrichello. You're right. Okay. Apologies for hey! that. <laughs> Apologies for that. It was, Ruben, it was Rubens, Jan Lammers, and Fritz van Erd that year. Yes, but no. I mean the answer was it definitely had potential. Uh, there was the win at Paul Ricard for SMP Racing, and by the way, they didn't just win; they dominated that. Race. That was that was a full-on domination in that race as well. Full-on that, and that was the first SMP race for the European Le Mans Series as well, I believe. I believe they did that as a oh, one-off. Yeah, because they, they they bought one of those chassis, mm. um, and then they raced that chassis were, uh, at Le Mans as well. Um, so the answer was it was good, but you're right; it did have a, a, a basic inherent aerodynamic floor in the car that made the thing porpoise. And that and was with the high downforce kit, wasn't it? High downforce Oh, sorry, kit. the low downforce kit. Uh, the so, Le Mans kit. No, no, the no. high downforce kit was crap as well. Oh, okay. Um, it's all to do with... It's it's to do with what should really be one part being two parts um, on the front end of that car, okay. is my understanding of it. And the floor in the Joker process is that whilst they're allowed to do some things they were effectively not permitted by regulation to fix that problem which to me was a major failing in that process yeah remember the joker process would allow the cars to match but not exceed the performance of the best car at that point which of course was the orica, was the orica yeah um, the it without getting into the ins and outs the nitty-gritty of all this they were not allowed to do what they wanted to do to that car yeah the Theory being that that would then exceed the abilities of the Orica, the reality being that it didn't fix the problem. And so and if you don't fix the problem, then you can't make that case. Yeah. yeah. What was interesting to me, though, in 2017 and 2018 was that we saw teams have a real shot in a variety of chassis. So someone has just posted in our live chat saying that Guido Vandergaard, in particular, at Spa-Francorchamps, at... Oh, yeah. uh, at, uh, at 
Barcelona at uh, Paul Ricard, when he was in that car for those first stints, he would destroy the field, but it was as the AM drivers came into those cars, into the Delaris, into the Legiates, that they started to fall back. And it kind of pointed towards uh, the Orica being the most neutrally balanced and easiest to drive uh, and... That, and better on its tyres. And better on and better on its tyres. And, and that, that, that thing is, Michael, that only then became worse. Remember, at this stage, we had Michelin and Dunlop as well. Yes. So there was the opportunity to choose through the two. And there were some conditions, it was much better for Dunlop and some better for Michelin. So that's another variable that was later removed. Um, but the other thing to remember is this. That's where, when you've got something that is not a completely neutral package, that's where a proper professional driver really earns their corn because yes. they can drive around a problem absolutely Whereas, you know and we saw a couple of times with fritz um in the delara he just was not living his life i, I remember one particular instant at fuji. fuji yes yeah fuji and that was frankly that was pretty poor management from the team putting him out on the wrong tires the wrong t- but that's the p- point at which you see a multi-millionaire losing his temper um correctly that his resource has not been used correctly to the advantage of the whole team in particular, but him in him in general. Yes. The whole team in general, him in particular. Um, and that just wasn't very smart. But the reality beyond that is this. There comes a tipping point with all of those cars, particularly when you've got a, a class as deep as LMP2, which at certain points is at 25 to 30 cars running worldwide. Yeah, like um, it has been, just as a quick aside, it has been yeah. the most subscribed prototype class in my memory it's been yeah. the biggest grids at Le Mans European Le Mans series Asian Le Mans series WC doesn't matter it's huge grids so that's a big tick for these I, regulations I'd, I'd say this much uh, going back to what I said about the 2017 um, the evolution of those regulations and me not liking it I still don't like what they did I still don't like what they did and I still think what they did was wrong I think they were pretty lucky yeah. I'll be honest with you that the um the way in which things emerged um, fell into their lap rather than this being some kind of grand plan. Genuinely, I think that's the case. And I think there's a huge amount of kudos needs to go to the big teams that actually put together credible programs with really fantastic um, driver lineups and committed and passionate gentleman drivers to help to drive that vision forward. And that's then opened the doors as some of those, uh, the the benefits of scale come forward to smaller teams aspiring to that. We can have a number of those again this year with Nielsen Racing coming to LMP2 and others Al- as well. Algarve Pro uh, putting together the G-Drive effort as well, which means three cars at Le Mans. You're going to, you're going to see a lot more from Algarve Pro with or without G-Drive as well. So all of that kind of comes together. So um, in terms of the, the next tipping point comes, and this is what really has given us the all Oracle era is it's not the fact that the Ligier is a poor car. It isn't a poor car. No, it has got you know, the, the gearbox was its Achilles heel. The aerodynamics were the, um, the Dolores Achilles heel. But the thing that killed it is the fact that you get to the stage where, when one team that says, okay, we're fed up with this Dolores, let's go with an Orica. And someone else says, let's go with a Ligier rather than Orica. Then it comes down to tyres. Yeah. And then what you get is tyres that develop to suit the predominant car. And if 
the vast majority of the really good teams are running the same chassis, then of course what you're going to get is development of that car is around. So now what you've got are tires that really don't suit Ligier or don't suit a Dallara. Yeah, it it's going to be a huge snowball effect, effectively. It um, does, and, and that's a shame. But but you know, at least what we've got are fields that are pretty deep, full of very good cars. And the Oracle Zero Seven is a very, very it, good car. A very good car. Um, you, wanna... You've heard me say it, and I'll keep saying it. It's time we had a conversation with all the people who keep going on about Formula Orica about how good a car it really is. I, I've got I've got written at the bottom of this section of notes here: Is the Orica 07 the best prototype car built to a set of regulations? Probably. It's, yeah. it, it just I, seems it just seems that every single team that went to an Orica immediately saw results, and I think the two that stick out for me, and they're two really big ones, um, United Autosports, which were yep. the last stalwart of the Ligier. And won races with it. And won races with it. And yep. won, almost won championships with it. They went into an Orica and had the most successful run of any team in the last 20 years, uh, yep. except for Porsche Penske. They went into that team, they went into that chassis and won eight races on the trot. Well, I'll give you another one. I won't name the driver because it's not fair, but it's a gentleman driver that drove uh, significant numbers of races in a Ligier chassis. Mm. And I remember having a conversation with him after his first day at a quite t- challenging test track, a uh, racetrack being used for testing in his first day in Arica, where he went 2.2 seconds quicker than he'd ever been round there in a Ligier simply because it suited his driving style. It was a more forgiving thing. Now, look, look, Orica had huge advantages there, which is why yes. I say it was controversial about the 0.5 being adaptable to that. It's why we haven't got very many Orica 0.5s left anymore, because most of them were rebuilt. Are they, are there two? Are they there's are there? the 2015... No, there's more. There's, there's more. 0.5s? Yes, yeah. Um, I've got the number somewhere, uh, but there's more. Um, oh. But the... The reality of that was you've got to also add in that they had the advantage of the some of the aero that was transferable in terms of the lessons from the 05, but also the aero lessons that were transferable from their LMP1 programs with the Rebellion R1, which was based on the 05. Uh, so, you know, th- these are not silly people. They're going to use what numbers they've got to give themselves the best possible advantage. What do you get with aero? You get performance. But you also, if you're smart, get time management out yeah. of that as well. So what you've got is an error package that is not uh, going to take away from what you need, which is, you know, a good tire management. So it's a stunning piece of kit. By the summer this year, there will be over 100 of those as well. That's which, by the way, which includes the DPI accurates. Yeah. It includes the cars that were um, converted from... Orica 05s. I think nine of those cars were converted from 05s. Okay. Um, uh, it doesn't include any of the LMP1 cars. They're not counted in that total. Yeah. And the one quick thing I'd say, because we, we keep seeing this, here's chassis 86, here's chassis 89. When you see those cars, it's not necessarily in the right order. So 86 might appear before 82. Okay. 87 might appear before 85. And that's all to do with when were the cars commissioned and when do they need the car? Yeah, okay. And more to the point, when have they paid for the car? Is the <laughs> other kind of part of it. Yes. And the final, final point to make about those numbers is that chassis 100 will not be the 100th car. Chassis 101 will be the 100th car because there is no chassis 13. Ah, classic, of course. 
love the superstitions. And you've done quite a fair bit of research into the Oracle 07 at, yep. in recent times as well. And I, I know that there's a project that you're working on if you want to talk about it now. I, or I, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been in conversation with a number of people. I'm talking to some people at the moment uh, about a project to commemorate two things. One is the success of that car. Bear in mind, when that car leaves its frontline service, it will be as old as the FLM 09 was when that left. Think about that for a moment. Wow, yeah, you're right, because so, it'll be 2023 now that that car will live on to. Well, at least. I mm. mean, watch this space in terms of what might be planned for that car somewhere. Um, but the it has been an astonishing success. Its final year in frontline competition will also be the 50th anniversary of Orica. Oh, wow. So, um, look, I mean... Me and my my waning years of youth, you know, it's I'm well over 23 years old. Now. <laughs> um, I'd love to write the book. I'd love to write the book. And and if you were to ask me, am I talking to people about the potential of doing that? I 100% am. Not just that book, but other books as well. Um, but I I think that 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 that's an area that needs to be recognised. Remember, that car finished second overall at the Mon. Yeah. It, it, and nearly won. You know, that that would have been right there, one of the all-time great performances. Actually, was one of the all-time great performances, but the all-time great stories about a lower-class car taking the win at the Le Mans 24 Hours. That right there would have been an absolute barnstormer. And by the way, at a point where LMP1 hybrid was still strong. Was at its peak. Was at its peak. 2016 or 2017 was... Still very, yes, 2017, very, oh, yeah. very, very strong. 2016, absolutely at its peak, but 2017, very strong. And uh, probably the, the closest we got to seeing a, a lower-class car win overall since the GT1 days. And I think the other thing to say about this, about the Formula Orica thing, because it is predominant there from people that, that don't understand, mm. you know, the way that this works is... It, it becomes a bit fine. of a joke, a meme, yeah. No, but fine, okay, look, just look at, look at, European Le Mans series. Go and have a look at the times uh, those cars are producing. Uh, all there on the Alchemel website. And take two cars at random. Take a car that's running at the front of the field and take a car that's running midfield or indeed towards the back of the grid. And then look at whether or not you want to look at a bronze driver or a silver driver or a gold driver and look at the difference in lap times there as well. That is a spec chassis with a spec engine on a spec tyre and still they're producing vastly different lap times, vastly different lap times because of the engineering input you can put into that car. That's why I love it, because it is still a team game. There are teams that choose to set those cars up to be friendly towards the gentleman driver because he might be at the, the peak level of his ability just to get that car around safely. It could be that. Okay. Mm. There are others that, uh, give it a less compliant platform and choose to, to unlock more of the pace of the gold or platinum ranked drivers they've actually got. All of that kind of comes into it, into the thing. There are those that are better on tyres than others. It, it, there is still a remarkable amount of variation. Yeah. And more to the point, because the mechanical package is exactly the same, it's really tough to pass in those cars. It's, it's tough to pass in those cars yeah. in a way that, Formula One isn't yeah. because of DRS. And that means you've got to race them. And it means like you, you, you referred earlier to David Heimann Hansen and defensive drive against Bruno Senna. By the way, Bruno, um, uh, a man that produced a performance in 
the rebellion year in LMP2, is one of the very few to have dominated a season in a spec class in any series. I thought it was an exceptional yeah. year for him. That was the Valeo 2 so, rebellion year. There you go. That, that's something you should be looking for, by the way, in any kind of spec classes. Who's really special in those cars? And it's like a Job Voluta in LMP3. Or, that year when he... or a Shane Van Gisbergen in supercars this year. And that's something Bingo. I always say about the supercars, because yeah. it is a class a car with technical parity is then that puts the onus on the engineering side to make those cars quick and that's the same thing with the formula oracle the oracle it's 07 a, it's a combination between depth of engineering talent and the ability to unlock things through testing and then the raw talent of the people behind yeah. the wheel well, and then let's let's talk about where lmp2 sits now yep. it has some of the best driving talent in the world. And I'm talking yep. any, any grid for, from Formula 1, F- Formula 2, IMSA, w- WEC, ELMS. LMP2 has significantly, well, quite, has the upper echelon of drivers in that field, has the upper echelon of teams and setups and engineering talent in those yep. fields. Uh, you say they might have lucked into it. The ACO didn't necessarily plan this, but... LMP2 has to be an attractive prospect for any young driver or amateur with a fair bit of money. Well, let me tell you what you're going to see this year, okay? Well, let me tell you what you're going to see this year. And, okay, it's different now. It's moved forward because now it's about putting yourself in a shop window for hypercar because yeah. that's going to be an astonishing marketplace. So what you're going to see this year, uh, and there'll be some more announcements to come relatively shortly. We've had one this morning about Nico Muller doing the – uh, Relics 24 with High Class. He completes their driving lineup. There's another LMP2 squad that's going to be announced later today uh, that, again, is very high-quality guys in LMP2 car uh, at the Relics 24. Um, you're going to see, like you say, young drivers coming out of single-seaters, uh, choosing to, to, to go towards sports cars. You're going to see high-profile drivers coming uh, from GT factory contracts to, to show that they're there. It's like we saw with Conor de Filippi racing in LMP3 mm. in the Michelin Le Mans Cup, for Christ's sake. You know, it, it's they, they want to be able to go into those meetings with their factory handlers to go, give me a shot. Here's my numbers. And you're going to be seeing at least one very recently ex-Formula 1 driver in LMP2 this year. Wow. Um, not at not least yet, but very, very, uh, 100%, you're going to see at least one. Um uh, very talented ex-Formula 1 driver that's going to be an LMP2. And year. all of a sudden, the chat starts throwing names out. <laughs> I'm not, not looking at chat, so I can't comment on it. Uh, certainly would not give you any clues, but I, I can tell you 100% that that uh, that's going to happen. And that's, by the way, someone we've not seen in LMP2 before. Ooh, uh, that so is very The other thing I'd say, by the way, is when you're talking to, you know, whether or not it's, Drivers themselves, and I get some of those calls, whether or not it's driver handlers, managers, and I get a lot of those calls, whether it's teams. No one refers to LMP2 as being the poor man's choice anymore. Nobody. It is simply not part of the lexicon of court at all. It is seen very much as what it actually is, which is a stepping stone. And yes, we're in that area that I know people have been critical about, about stratification. I, I sort of get it. I sort of don't. I think there's been a very mature decision made with the new changes that are coming for 2022. Which is which, the, um, the biofuel uh, from the, yep. the wine uh, waste. Yep. And uh, so they're, they're reducing the fuel tanks and 
yeah. as a res- as a consequence of the new fuel, the power is also being reduced as well. I saw. It's partly to do with it's a it's a whole mix. But here's the plus side. Those changes were not determined behind closed doors, then handed down in a bulletin. They were discussed with representatives of a number of the teams. Brilliant. A number of the teams have spoken to me about the veracity of those negotiations. The eight kilowatts of power is not particularly that's important. Nothing. That's nothing. Okay. Um, the really important part is how they're going to manage that power. Uh, so that's instead of doing it electronically, which is what happened last year, it's all going to be done with the air restrictor. That will mean the cars are more drivable and it will mean the cars are back to where they should be in terms of reliability. So it's the change in the mechanical package that the, 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 uh, the air that the, the car is able to, to drag in rather than doing it electronically, which has basically meant the cars were running at 82 percent on the throttle. Yeah, they're not which, made to do that. Yeah, they're which, not, and that—that's you know, which is why you started to see things breaking uh, with those cars. So we don't want that. Uh, the fuel, yes, is less calorific um, than the the fuel it's replacing. The reason why they've gone for the fuel tank reduction and therefore the reduction in stink length, which I think will be about half an hour. Okay. Wow. Like that. Wow, that is short. But the the choice was given. What do you want to do? Do you want to take it? They, 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 they realized with new cars coming in, which will take time to get to where they ultimately can, that the BOP process will necessarily back that hypercar field down into the new cars coming in. So if you're going to keep stratification, which is sort of an accepted requirement here, what do you want? Do you want us to reduce your performance or do you want us to keep you out of that battle by making you pit more often? Now, to me, that is exactly the conversation they should have had last year. Yeah. Uh, am I happy with an endurance race car doing 30, 35 minutes on fuel? No, I'm not. Am I happier that when they're out there, they can push hard and be part of a battle? Yes, I am. Yeah. There's Absolutely. nothing wrong with an LMP2 car being driven brilliantly well, snapping at the heels or even getting by a stumbling hypercar for part of a stint. They should have to push. Much like and Phil Hansen did at Spa this year. Bingo. Exactly that. And didn't that make that a lot more exciting? Oh, yeah. That was incredible. So I think you're going to see a whole range of things you're not expecting to see, including some changes in some of the cars you're not expecting to see. So I think, you know, in the the first of what will be at least three pieces about what to expect in hypercar that's already up on Delhi Sports Car, I implied that you're going to see some changes in the Tota and you're going to be seeing some changes in the Clickenhaus. You now know at least one of those changes is the, the brake by wire. That's already been announced by Jim. Uh, but you are going to see some significant changes in the Tota for next season. Significant changes. Brilliant. And uh, that's a good thing. The one thing I think isn't going to happen, I think, is all this promise that we had that we might see you know, a miracle new Michelin tyre for the non-hybrid uh, hypercars. That I don't expect to see. Okay. Uh, I think we will see some improvements in the tyres for the non-hybrids, but I just don't, don't think they've been able tire. to produce something yeah. that's able to produce the performance over the time that's required. Yeah. So it's going to be down to BOP. Yeah. What we're seeing with LMP2 is a recognition of that fact. And that is going to be the reality moving forward. We actually can't have the... Um, the performance that we 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 had, were expecting. No, we can't have the rich harvest of hypercar without BOP. We yeah. can't have it. 
In other words, it's, it's exactly the same way as anybody out there or is listening that loves GT3 racing. Without BOP, it you doesn't can't exist. Have that. Exactly. You can't have that. So yeah. you, you can sort of have, it's a bit like you can love the way that WEC manages a race or you can love the way that IMSA manages a race. You can like both, but it's sort of a choice. Yeah. It's sort of a choice that you either manage the field through your yellow flag periods or you don't. It's not the WC way to set it up for a grandstand finish. Hmm. The race races the way that the race races. IMSA do it differently. And and for me, it really works for a long-distance race. It really doesn't work for a two-hour and 40-minute race. That's my concern is you spend way too much of your time proportionally under yellow uh, to less... um, advantage at the end of those races yeah. so that to me is the, the change that i would make um that's not for today for, for today for lmp2, LMP2 yeah. is a fantastic supporting act for what's a pretty thin hypercar field at the moment at the i moment. hope it stays that way yes so this is the, this is the as we've got to, you know five minutes left in this before we hit two hours and we really should be wrapping up um what happens next for LMP2? We've gone from these very small, very unreliable, very lightweight uh, bits of kit uh, through a manufacturer era, through a production engine era, now into what is the one of the most subscribed and highest quality fields and classes in the world. LMP2, the next iteration was meant to be 2022. That's been pushed back to 2023. It will be the basis for the new LMDH, which is going to be a... 2024. 2024. 2024. Okay, so yeah. it's uh, yeah. yeah, so it's pushed back to pushed back to a year. Regardless, it's a, a year a back. year after LMDH basically. Yeah. So it's the basis of the LMDH platform, which is going to be full factory with customers. What does this mean for LMP2? Because LMP2 at its core has been pro am. It's been the fastest thing yeah. a normal human can go and buy and race. Well, normal human, yeah. a normal human with money coming out of the wazoo. But still, what does this mean then for the LMP2 class? Will there be a pressure to bump up into into LMDH? Is there going to be that sort of pressure that we saw, for example, with the DPI versus LMP2 split in IMSA, where all of a sudden, if you wanted to be competing for overall you had to be buying uh, or getting a dpi car will that same pressure still exist for well, the- i think that the, the optic from a budget for lmp2 to lmdh is pretty significant i mean it's not quite in terms of running costs not quite double but it's not very far away okay. I mean, my guess would be you're probably at the moment for a full season in wc talking about 3.2 to 4 million uh, for LMDH, I think you're talking four and a half to maybe six million to run the car. Yeah. The cost of the car is very significantly okay. in advance yeah. of that. So that's the difference between a fully spec package and one where there is significant manufacturer involvement in the design of development. So does that so, mean uh, that we might see a return of the amateur, the, the true amateur back to the LMP2 class if those... Maybe. Those... Maybe that's what they'll try and do. I think what we've not yet seen is what uh, IMSA or the ACO are going to do. Um, and this comes a little later, doesn't it, in, in terms of are we going to see a kind of pro-am LMDH uh, class? The inevitability is we will. Uh, really? You think, I, you think I, it's I can't inevitable? See the because there's going to be people that want to buy those cars and race them, and they're not going to want to do that 
history, recent history teaches us, this is why Stefan's uh, AMCLAS collapsed, is it's very difficult to feel as if you're winning if you're coming 47th in a 54-car field, yeah. all the cars are the same specification. So the reality is you do need a class, is, is what it comes down to. There's no immediate sign that's going to happen. That will be part of the mix here. What they need to keep an eye on, more than anything else, is the future of the ladder. And this is where I think there's a major risk. And this is why LMP2 needs a bit more attention than it's currently getting. If what you've got is a WEC um, hypercar class that includes, let's say, something between 15 and 20 cars, yeah. something of that order, all those cars are going to Le Mans. Uh, everybody in the WEC is going to be going to Le Mans. They're pushing for 40 cars this year across the um, across the whole field. There's not going to be a shortage of, of GT3 teams wanting to come to do the WEC because they'll be able to go to Le Mans. So if you assume that 40 cars in the future is a reasonable um, level of expectation that the WEC will take there, that means there's only 25 spaces, 22 spaces left. And that includes, by the way, factories that want to bring additional cars for Le Mans, yeah. IMSA cars that are coming. And, and the class winners then, of the European Le Mans series, Asian Le Mans series, et cetera, et cetera. So you might be that there's... 25 cars fighting over the four or five remaining spots. And that's the problem. That's where the threat is coming to the ladder is by success at the top end. And ask yourself this question. Are you going to invest in a two-car effort in LMP2 in the European Le Mans series without a certainty of getting to uh, Le Mans? Or are you going to go and buy a GT3 car and just enter? I'd buy a GT3 car because that way, that way it's confirmed. It's the, 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 the issue here is, this is where I think there's a degree of sleepwalking around at the moment is necessarily they're concentrating on 22, 23, 24, because that's when all the big change happens. I, I would like a conversation that reassures me they're thinking about 25, 26 and what the impact of success in the WEC is having on the European Le Mans series the Asian Le Mans series, the Michelin Le Mans Cup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because any spec class survives and thrives on bulk numbers. It is about numbers. And if you, if you, at the moment we've got probably, I want to say 25 to 30 active LMP2 cars around the world, yep. something like that order. If that halves, that's a big deal. Mm. And, and that's, that's my concern yeah. is that, you know, is that other things are becoming more attractive. The reality for my money is that I think we will see some LMP2 teams um, graduating to LMDH. Yep. But I think you'll see more GTE teams doing that than you do LM, uh, GT, uh, uh, LMP2 teams. Right, particularly. Something, something like WRT. Well, th th I think that's a bit different. I think WRT and um, uh, Jota and United and teams of that ilk, they're targeting factory deals. Correctly yeah. so. They're at that level. It's when you start getting into the teams that will tell you they're aspiring to go to LMDH. That's great, but they've got a huge financial gap. They've got a gap in terms of buying the car, which is of the order of million and a half to two million euros gap in buying the car. Um, you've got the gap in terms of the running costs, which is of the order of multi-millions of euros as well every year okay mm. so you've got to find the difference between what you're struggling to do now and what you'll be looking to do 
in the very near future. And the reality is most of those teams won't make it. So they're going to be looking to, to retain their place in a supporting class. It's why I keep saying about the, the GTE teams being the place where you're more likely to find it. Why? Because that's a, that they're teams where you've got a driver, owner of the car, that is already spending seven figures on a car. In LMP2, that's not the case. It's significantly cheaper than that. You're talking orders of magnitude of disposable income or investable income to buy that car. So a GTE, those cars are starting realistically at about a million euro yeah. to, 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 to buy before you put it on track. And that's just not where the P2 car is because the P2 no. car is the fastest bang for your buck that you can get. So it's so it's the ownership profile, I guess, is the best way of explaining that. Yeah. Which is which is that is the the puzzle that needs to be the puzzling knot that needs to be unpicked is what happens not necessarily in 2023 but in 24 and 25 to the core of the professional teams that have have been the entry for all those big races. I think, I think I'm right saying Le Mans this year, 87% of those teams are private teams. So as across both GTE across, and LMP. Correct. Yeah. So that, that's the impact, that, that's the significance in your current business plan. And we've just froze. Going to change. It clearly comes down for GTE. But it goes up for prototypes with the uh, the uh, factory teams coming in. But it's still that's a big gap hmm. to close, which is not going to be completely closed by factory teams. So you've got to find a structure that supports them to carry on somewhere in your you know multiverse of you know opportunities to race. And that's the bit where I do have concerns that they haven't got the moment what I would regard as being a plan. Well, hopefully they do sort out a plan because I would hate, personally, I would hate to see what has been such a enthralling and special class, a fantastic class uh, for the wayside because it has had, as we've just talked about, a a storied history starting from uh, some kind of anonymous beginnings in in worldwide motorsports to to find its way to where we are now. And it's been a, a great entertainment package that has supported the WEC when it's not been as uh, when the top class hasn't been as strong as it should be possibly it's it's and you know what it's been a, a in the same way being part of the operation that brought to life the major peaks with LMP1 hybrid was was one of my life's privileges it genuinely was working with John you know to to bring those races to a to a worldwide audience i loved every single moment of it but now, you know, most of my time is taken, you know, behind a microphone talking about, about exactly LMP2. these cars, but yeah. MP2. And you know what? I don't love it that much less, is the straight answer. You know, it has produced some great racing. It's, just... it's produced some great racing, some great teams. You've seen some really emerging talents. We're going to see more. You know, we're talking at the moment of the two or three kind of announcements in the next 48 hours that, you know, you're going to see, you know, young drivers choosing to, to turn in this direction. And that's a great thing. It's great to see that we're going to see more emerging talent that we won't, you and I won't in my dotage and when you're, when you're about to hit kind of 23 uh, talking about <laughs> being lost. There's been too many lost generations because the opportunities have not been there to, to retain people in the sport. And happily 
we're in an era now where there's less of a lost generation because what you've got, the, if you like, the, the bonus to the cost of pro-am racing is that we keep those talented people in the sport for longer and gives them the opportunity to find other things to do. And that, I think, we'll look back on and think that was a good part of the sport. It means that people can invest in their own passion and in talent and it's not making the race that much worse. And all you're seeing with those bronze drivers, by the way, is they're just getting better. Yeah, absolutely. They're getting better. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Fritz van Erd and uh, uh, Esteban Garcia, and oh, yeah. their, their battle this year has been amazing. Also looking at GTE, um, the Roberto Lacorte is, uh, is yep. the for Settler. Their first win this season was just a, a beautiful moment to see. And Absolutely, those the, those bond drivers certainly have personalities, and yeah, that's, per, that's... Per, the likes of Perodo. You know, mm. the, you know the likes of beyond that Simon Dolan. Um, you know, in his days in Jota, yeah. Mike Newton. You know, where we we have to develop. A, yeah, we have to develop a completely new. Uh, way of explaining the difference between professional and gentleman drivers, and we we started calling them sportsman drivers because actually they, they weren't were, driving like just gentleman drivers anymore. They were they, were they were hauling. Yeah, you know, and, I've, and, I've been pedalled round a couple of tracks by these guys. Trust me, you know, it's significantly out of uh, the abilities of you and I. It's the it's the messes. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I think we'll we'll get close to wrapping it up there. I just want to say as well, um, the fact that you can have people like Anthony Davison and uh, uh, Nicola Lapia coming into these classes and coaching drivers effectively is a, a great thing um, as well because that just raises the standard of everyone and it's raised the standard of this class. And thank yeah. you very much for discussing the LMP2 class with me today, Graham? Anytime. I mean, you know me. I'm, I'm never short of words when it comes to talking about Absolutely. sports cars. I'm utterly passionate about it. And I, we, should, we should do more of this. Absolutely. Maybe you and, and I should have that conversation. Stay tuned, everyone. Stay tuned. <laughs> Things are happening. And it, it is and it is an absolute privilege to have someone like you who was able to do this and just is so passionate and so well-versed and well spoken about it and I've like a, a lot of this I've already known but I've also learnt a lot just through having this conversation I hope that our listeners as well uh, have the same experience so thank you very much for, for doing this two quick things one is really genuinely a very Merry Christmas to everybody that's listening Absolutely. and you particularly Michael I know it's been a tough year but some good news to come on the professional front for you right at the end and I, I noticed a little while ago that over my it's my left shoulder but my right to you uh, the poster there, which is the epic um, Michel Vion poster that was produced a while ago for the uh, Spa 24 Hours, and our good mate Alex Zanardi announced this morning he's recovering now, continues recovery at home. I'm not sure what kind of public life Alex is going to have, but there's a man that deserves a couple of prayers if that's the way you, you, you go about your life. Uh, have a great Christmas, everybody. Enjoy whatever passions. Uh, this year's brought to you and there's a lot more to come next year January and February is going to be very busy yeah indeed. absolutely and you have a great Christmas yourself as well Graham and to your family to Trudy and to Oscar and to your uh, your daughter Jessie as well make sure that you have a, a nice relaxing time and uh, ahead of your crazy couple of months at the beginning of next year as well thanks guys keep yeah. being you and thank you very much for listening I've been Michael Zalavari peace out peace out